Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Uh, Here we go again. Another sermon. And I never feel ready. You'd think after 15 years I'd feel confident, but I'm always nervous, always insecure. And I know God's word is powerful, but I feel so weak. Pathetic is more accurate. No matter how much I work, no matter how hard I try, I just never feel like I got what it takes. Okay, Mossgrove, game on. Smile. Don't suck. Let's roll. So I'm curious. Does anyone else in the room have an ongoing war in your mind? An ongoing war. I don't know about you, but I so often battle in my mind between thoughts of faith and thoughts of fear. I so often want to trust God... And yet I also want to control. Maybe you're like this. Maybe you're like this. Maybe you can walk in one moment and you feel so full of spiritual confidence that God's with you, that God's for you, that he's called you, he's going to walk with you. And in the next moment you have this crippling anxiety that just paralyzes you or insecurity that just holds you back and prevents you from being who God's called you to be. What I have discovered, church, is that The mind is indeed a battlefield. The mind is a battlefield. And most of life's battles are won or they're lost in the mind. The more I've studied scripture, and you even find this and looking at what neuroscience would say, that most of life's battles are won or lost in your mind. The good news is, who's ready for some good news this morning, right? The good news is that God's word is powerful, not just to help you, but to transform you and to help you renew your mind with truth. And because, listen, his word is powerful, I would love for you today, if you would, and those that are streaming live, because the word of God is so powerful, even if you're watching in your kitchen today, well, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Let's stand. If you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, you can raise your hand right quick, and one of our ushers would love to serve you. We're in uh, this series, week three, called Real to Real, using Blockbuster, the big screen, to communicate gospel truth. Today, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to try to, in the, the moments we have together, to get into the mind of the Apostle Paul. Have you ever heard of the ultimate warrior before? You've heard of this ultimate warrior? Well, Paul was kind of like... Literally the ultimate thought warrior. When you look at his life, you notice early on he becomes a follower of Jesus. And then what we get to do is through the epistles, we get to watch how Jesus renews his mind. Like Romans 7, which you looked at a couple of weeks ago, we see this battle in his mind where he says, The things I want to do, I don't do. You can probably relate. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And he almost sounds crazy, if you will with all the thoughts in his mind. And so what we see in the New Testament is he, uh, he progresses in his life and ministry and he learns, like we have to learn, to wage war against the lies that attack his mind. That we have to capture wrong thoughts like the Apostle Paul does and replace them with truth to win that war in his mind. So this is what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in this world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Everybody say power. Power. This Greek word power is translated dunamis. It means the explosive, miraculous power of God. We get our word dynamite from it. Watch this. The weapons that we fight with, they have power, divine power, to demolish, to destroy strongholds. Now, you may not use that word stronghold in your everyday life. What is a stronghold? It comes from the Greek word akuruma, and it's a military stronghold. It's like a fortress that was built right in the middle of a city. It would be surrounded by walls that would be 20 feet deep, 20 feet deep. And it's where the military officials would be kept in the battle or where prisoners would kept so that the 
the enemy would not be able to take them back. The devil, our spiritual enemy, he wants to attack your mind and create fortresses and strongholds of deception. So you believe something is untrue and then that takes you away from God's calling for your life and God's calling for your marriage and God's healing in your life. What's the devil trying to do? What's the devil trying to do? He's trying to shape your thinking one lie at a time until you are a prisoner of deception. So what does the devil tell you? You can't ever trust people. You'll never succeed. You're always going to be broke. You're never going to have a good marriage. God didn't hear your prayers. God didn't care about you. You're not going to make a difference. You won't amount to anything. Well, how do we battle in our mind? The scripture tells us this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And what do we do? With God's help, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. The title of today's message is A Beautiful Mind. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that by the power of your living word, you would renew our minds today with truth. You would set us free, God, from believing the lies that rob us of joy, of peace, of calling in life. And God, may your truth set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody sit. You may be seated today. Look at somebody next to you. Just air five them or high five them and say, get your mind right. Come on, just tell them. Say, get your mind right. If you're streaming live today, get your mind right. Get your mind right. If you're watching on Facebook, just type in the chat right now. Get my mind right. Get my mind right. So today we're going to look at the truth of change your thinking, change your life. In this series, Real to Real, I've chosen today's movie to, to be a beautiful mind. A Beautiful Mind. This movie, A Beautiful Mind, is based on the true life experiences of a man named John Nash. He's a professor of mathematics at Princeton University. He's both a brilliant mathematician, but he's also a paranoid schizophrenic. That paranoia has caused him considerable difficulties in his life, but it did not prevent him from making world-class discoveries, not only in mathematics, but from experiencing also a rewarding life and an incredibly amazing teaching career. So what the movie does is the movie depicts Nash going through a long phase of his life where mental illness just absolutely controlled him. He was hospitalized at one point when he was no longer to function in society and he was a threat to himself and family. Well, his return to society after the period of hospitalization was not satisfactory. The medication that controlled his mental illness, dulled his senses, so he couldn't function with his wife sexually or emotionally, intellectually, couldn't connect with her. He, he took himself off the medication and almost immediately returned to his paranoid delusions. So the psychiatrist, uh, psychiatrist, I should say, urged his wife to return him to the hospital. And Nash believed that if he were a hospitalist a second time, he would never get out of the hospital again. He was paranoid and scared to death. One of the most powerful scenes in the movie is where Nash begs his wife not to return him to the institution, but to give him a chance to control his schizophrenic delusions with his mind. She agrees to his request and slowly with her help and some newer medications, John Nash began to take control of his life again. But the movie begins with him arriving at Princeton University as a new graduate student. He's a recipient of the prestigious Carnegie Prize for mathematics. He was promised a single room, but... He has no single room. He has a roommate named Charles, a literature student, becomes his best friend. And then he gets surrounded by other graduate students, Martin Hansen, Saul, Ansley, and Bender, with whom he strikes up this awkward friendship. And throughout his Princeton years, the friends around him, it comes as no surprise that he's able to do math so well because he can't do anything else well. He has some awkward conversations with the girl at the bar. He can't really connect in his college years. He's seeking to truly an original idea for his thesis paper at Princeton. And he's under increasing pressure to develop this thesis so he begins his work. Well, he has this harsh rejection from a woman at the bar that ultimately inspires his fruitful work in the concept of what we call governing dynamics or a theory in mathematical economics. After the conclusion of his time there at Princeton, he accepts this prestigious appointment at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, along with his friend Solon Bender. Well, five years later, while he's teaching a class at MIT, he places a particular interesting problem on the board, and he dares his students to solve it. He dares them. When his student, Alicia Lahr, this is played by Jennifer Connolly, comes to his office to discuss the problem, the two fall in love, and they'll eventually marry. Watch this scene. 
eager young minds of tomorrow. Can we leave one open, Professor? It's really hot, sir. Your comfort comes second to my ability to hear my own voice. Personally, I think this class will be a waste of your, and what is infinitely worse, my time. However, here we are, so you may attend or not. You may complete your assignments at your whim. We have begun. This. find in a multivariable calculus, there's often a, a number of solutions for any given problem. As I was saying, this problem here will take some of you many months to solve. For others among you, it'll take you the term of your natural lives. There are a number of solutions to solve the problem. This message today is incredibly personal to me because I've been honestly on a several-year journey asking God, pleading with God, begging God to renew my mind, specifically in one area. I feel like I've made so much progress and I want to thank God for it, but I want to share with you today through God's Word the journey He's taken me on. And as I've studied the mind, both in Scripture and through science, what I've discovered is this. Are you ready? Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we tend to think comes out in our life. What we tend to dwell on comes out through our behavior. In fact, I've done a lot of research even in the last few years on cognitive behavior psychology, which shows that a lot of problems are actually Related in our lives to wrong thought processes, to having wrong thinking, some relational challenges, some eating disorders, addiction, some forms of anxiety. Now listen, not all forms of anxiety, hear me. My cosmology has been shaped by the reality that anxiety is not just psychological, but it is a dark spiritual force. So anxiety in some ways has to have spiritual intervention more than just psychological intervention. But, but you got you, you to hear what I say today and don't, don't think what I don't say. Okay, follow with me. In fact, if you think about it, God's word is true, number one, and science proves that. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, as a person thinks, watch this, so is he. That's who he is. What do we know? That the life we have is often a reflection of the thoughts that we think. What we think determines who we become. In other words, if you tend to think, I can't do something, I'll never be able to do something, I don't have what it takes. If you think you can't, you probably won't. If you think you can by the grace of God, you probably will. If you dwell on your problems, the world is getting bad, it's getting worse, your problems are going to overwhelm you. But instead, if you look for some solutions, if you say, I can have some faith, you'll find some solutions and you'll see faith in your life arise. If you always feel like a victim, you'll likely become a victim. If instead you believe that through Christ you are able to overcome by the power of Christ within you, you will overcome. Listen to me. In so many cases, the life we have is a reflection of the thoughts we think. And what I want to do today is I want to encourage you for a moment to just stop and think about what you think about. To take for a few moments we have and just kind of go through our minds and encourage you to do what I call a thought audit. A thought audit and think about what we think about. Now I'm going to show you just on the screen here three different categories to try to determine 
where you would actually fall on the list, where you would fall. The first skill I want to look at is contrasting your mindsets. Are you characterized by worried thoughts, panic, anxiety, fear? Or would you say that your thoughts are typically characterized by being full of peace? We'll start on the left side. Do you tend to wake up and have your mind drift towards fear? What could go wrong? I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about the state of the world, the direction our world is heading. I'm worried that the fact that our country is out of control. Do you find yourself more typified and characterized by your mind being worried in thoughts? Or even if things are bad and even if things are complicated, do you find yourself casting your cares upon God? And recognizing there is a peace that goes even beyond all human ability to understand. And you sense his presence and you sense his goodness and his spirit is with you even when you don't understand why things are the way they are. What would you say if you were auditing your thoughts? Are you more characterized by worried thoughts? Or are you more characterized by peaceful thoughts? A second category is this. Do your thoughts drift towards the negative or do your thoughts drift towards the positive? Do you wake up and find yourself negative every day and critical of everybody else and critical of everybody else's post and, and, and constantly searching for any and everything you can disagree with and, and, and you're trying to do anything you can to be hostile with communication and, and desktop publishing and you know, thumb scrolling or whatever the case is? Or do you assume the worst or instead of believing the best? Do you look at your day and say, oh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be bad. Times are tough. It's really difficult right now in our nation. How can, many, you know, how can we you know, take many more days like this? I'm always so busy. There's not enough of me to go around. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Or do you wake up with positive faith? And again, even if things are difficult, you say, you know what? Christ is with me. He helps me overcome. And things may be difficult in this world, but you know what? I'm thankful for a God who's working all things to bring about the good of those who are called according to his purpose. What would typify your thoughts? Third category, ask yourself, when it comes to what you think about, are your thoughts more worldly? Toward the things of this world that are just temporary, or do they drift towards that which lasts forever? Your thoughts may be more worldly, where you're just concerned with what you have, and what you wear, and what you look like, and who liked your posts, and how many followers do you have, and how many times do you have to open up the Instagram to see how many people have actually seen it since the last time you opened the Instagram, and how many people have seen it since the time well, you looked at it two minutes before that, and, and, then, and then and what about everybody thinking about you, and, and, or do your, do, does your mind drift towards that which is more eternal? which is God has given me a life to steward and, and, and I've got to make the most of that life right here in front of me right now and, and I have spiritual gifts to use and I've been commissioned by the Lord of the church and what I have is actually to be invested and in, given to make a difference in the people and lives of people around me. So when everything else burns, my life will, will count eternally. What would you say characterizes your thoughts? See, what we think about matters more than you and I could ever imagine. What comes into your mind comes out, next slide, in your life. What comes into your mind comes out in your life. No matter what you do, no matter what you have, who you know, what you buy, where you live, where you travel, you cannot have a positive life when you have a negative mind. You cannot have a positive kingdom experience with negative, opposite, diabolically opposed kingdom thoughts. Why? Because your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. So the question I want to ask you is this. Are you ready? you got to ask yourself. If your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts, are you excited about the direction your thoughts are taking you? Are you excited about the destination you'll arrive at? Is it a place that you want to go? Is it a place that you want to live? I asked myself that question several years ago, and my answer was no. If my thoughts are directing my life, and I look specifically at my thoughts in this season of life, I did not like the direction they were taking me in. They were consumed with negativity. They were consumed with fear. They were consumed with a pervasive, pervasive ominous, existential dread of meaninglessness and somewhat purposelessness. They were consumed and my inner dialogue would often be so discouraging and talking myself down over and over again. So several years ago through this period of my life, my number one top personal spiritual priority was to invite God to renew my mind with truth. 
And I've been on a passion for it so much that I got consumed with it and probably read too much about it, but hopefully trying to help other people the way God's Word has been helping me. And I remember saying, God, I need your help to renew my mind, to replace all the lies that replay in my mind with your spiritual truth. So there's two foundational thoughts, super simple message today that I want to build upon. Two foundational thoughts. The first one's this. What I want you to do is I just want to encourage you to identify the biggest stronghold holding you back. I want you to identify the biggest stronghold that you have that's holding you back. Remember that stronghold is that you're a prisoner locked by a lie. What is the biggest mental stronghold that's holding you back? You might think over and over again, I'm not good enough, or my past is too bad for God to use me, or I can't trust the people around me, or I'm always going to battle with my weight, or I'm never going to be good with money, or I can never be too close to God, or I'll never be in a job that's fulfilling with the people I love, or all my relationships are always going to break down, or I only date psychos, or whatever it is. Okay. If you find yourself identifying your negative thoughts, what I want you to do is to embrace the reality, listen to me, Your negative thoughts are changing the chemical makeup of your brain. They're changing physically, physiologically your brain. The reason is because every thought we have as humans creates a neurochemical change in your body. When you think a positive thought, you get a surge of rewarding neurotransmitters releasing a very legal and very exciting drug called dopamine. It's counterpart serotonin. It's legal and it's powerful. And your brain drops it into your system every time you think a positive thought. In fact, this is what neurotransmitter psychological drugs do. They they create neurotransmitters that block the drop of the dopamine. That's what antidepressants do. So when you think of the reality of your thought, every time your brain drops some dopamine, you get this hit, you get this buzz, you get this thrill. Someone you like and respect comments on your latest Instagram post. Drop, you get some dopamine, okay? Which is, this is what we're dealing with in, in the next gen, right? In the gen wires with being on their phone nonstop, okay? The dopamine crisis. And drop and drop and drop. You get some dopamine. Someone says, ooh, girl, your hair looks good. Dopamine. Mayor texts me in the middle of the day and says, thinking about you, come home soon. I'm like, dopamine, you know, like, <laughs> woo! It's that positive surge of release in your brain, Okay? It releases, and science, listen, tells us this, that once you have thought a thought, it becomes that much easier to think that thought again. Literally, we have billions of neural pathways in our brain, and the more often we think a thought, the more connection is there, and it's easier to think that thought again, and before long, whatever we've been thinking becomes our default thought. What is that word? Stronghold. Stronghold. If you believe a lie for long enough, you start to be impacted as if the lie were true. Your body responds to the lie as if it were true. You get stuck in a rut. Imagine this. Follow me. If I walk out of my front yard and I walk across the lawn for 100 days straight, if I get out of my front porch, walk across the lawn for 100 days straight, what would I do? I would create a path in my yard. If in my mind for a hundred days straight I think a lie, this is what happens, this is why it's so hard to get out of it. If for a hundred days straight I think the same lie, then what happens is I start to believe the lie and I create a neural pathway in my brain that then starts affecting everything. The way I sleep, the way I talk, the way I eat, who I interact with, the vision I see, all of that. There is a neurological pathway through my brain. Now with God's help we're going to renew our minds. If I stay off that path in my yard for 100 days, what happens? The grass grows back. There's more resistance to my step. My steps and my feet are dragging now through the grass. Why? Because it's hard. I've forged a new pathway in my brain toward the truth. And the truth does what? Sets me free. This is science, y'all. And it's God because God created science. Romans 12, 2, Paul said it this way. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. He could maybe say it's like don't be conformed to the wrong ways of thinking. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. We're staying off the destructive, negative paths, and we're creating new paths of truth. Now, I don't know how this will play out in your life, but maybe your path is this. It's a frustrating day at work, and you come home, and it's been crazy at home. Why? Because it's always crazy when you homeschool, and you've just been through a year of a, of, a, of a pandemic. And so you have some degree of kind of challenge, and you walk in, and your old path says, yell at your wife. What you do is you stay off that path. You capture that thought, you count to one, you count to three, you count to ten or ten million for some of you. 
and you say a prayer, and instead you walk a different road, and you come up and say, I'm sorry, it's been a difficult day, and you hug, and you change the tone by changing the path. You change the path. Or maybe you feel bad about yourself. So when you feel bad about yourself, there's a very direct path to the freezer. And you eat ice cream when you feel bad. And when you feel worse, because you eat the whole thing of ice cream. What you're going to do is create a new path. Instead of walking to the freezer, you're going to walk to the front yard. And you're going to walk around your neighborhood. And you're going to get some dopamine. And you're going to get some exercise. And you're going to create a new pathway. Why? When you're bored, what do you do? You pick up your phone. You look at Instagram. You scroll through at all your friends and you hate them because their life seems better than you and your life. And you got FOMO out of nowhere. And you're wondering, why weren't you there? Well, well they were there. Well, that, I was a part of that connect group one time and they got invited. And I wasn't there. And oh my God, I'm about to send an inbox right now to somebody in the church, particularly Pastor Craig, if he's alive. Let me click over to the right side and see if he's live right now. So, so what you do is you say, you know what? I'm going to create a new path. You open instead the Uversion Bible app, you put something different in your brain that renews your mind. To think in a different way, we're going to have to forge a new path in our brain because the more you walk the path, the easier it becomes to travel. And the more you stay off the old one, the weaker it becomes and it's harder to think those thoughts again. So here's your assignment. you got to, number one, identify the stronghold that's holding you back. Now hear me, church. I'm just talking about one. We won't deal with the 73 other ones yet. Okay, so today is dealing with the big one. What is it for you? You might battle with identity. You might feel like I'm just not lovable. Well, that's your one. Or you might wrongly believe because you've said it for thousands of days, I'll just never be good enough or I don't deserve anything good or I'll always be broke. There's haves and have nots and I'm just a have not, okay? I feel hopeless. I feel worthless. I feel uh, you know, helpless like life is pointless. So number one, you have to identify the stronghold. Hear me. You have to name it. Why, church? Because you cannot defeat what you do not define. You cannot defeat what you do not define. Back to the movie. Interestingly enough, on a return visit to Princeton, Nash runs into his former roommate Charles and meets Charles' young niece, Marcy, whom he adores. He encounters a mysterious Department of Defense agent, William Parcher. He's invited to a secret United States Department of Defense facility to crack a code. Okay? To crack a code. Parcher observes Nash's performance from above while partially concealed behind the screen. And Parcher gives Nash a new assignment to look for new patterns in magazines and newspapers and to try to thwart a Soviet plot. He must write a report of his findings and And he's chased finally by the Russians in an exchange of gunfire. Nash becomes increasingly paranoid and begins to have all kinds of erratic behavior. Well, after observing the erratic behavior, his wife Alicia informs a psychiatric hospital. So while delivering a guest lecture at Harvard, Nash realizes he's being watched by this hostile group of people. And though, though he attempts to flee, he's forcibly sedated and sent into a psychiatric facility. It's powerful. I just don't have time to show you the whole scene. And they're saying, he's not there! So now Nash has three friends that he talks to daily that are not there. They're not there. And his life seems to be spiraling out of control. Alicia's desperate to help her husband. She visits the mailbox and retrieves all of the never-opened, top-secret documents that Nash had delivered there. And when confronted with the evidence, Nash is finally convinced that he's been hallucinating. These are delusions. With a Department of Defense agent, his name is William Parcher, and Nash's secret assignment to decode the Soviet Union, so to speak, was in fact all a delusion. And even more surprisingly, Nash's friend Charles and his niece Marcy are only products of Nash's mind. And that's the point in the movie. You're like, whoa, how did I believe he was a real dude? So he has these painful shock therapy sessions, and Nash is released on the condition that he'll take an antipsychotic medication. The drugs, though, create all these side effects and reflect his relationship. And while bathing his infant son one day, he becomes distracted and wanders off. And he thinks that his friend is there to watch the baby. Let's see his wife's response.
He was okay. There's no one here. Charles is watching. He's been injected with a cloaking serum. I can, I can see him because of a chemical that was released into my bloodstream. And my implant dissolved. I couldn't tell you it was for your own protection. Alicia! No. Hello, I need Dr. Rosen's office, please. You gotta stop her, John. You leave her out of this. Who are you talking to? It's not her fault. John. She'll compromise us again. No, she won't. You'll go back to the hospital. John, answer me! Countless people will die. Alicia, please, put the phone down! I can't let that happen. Yes, hello. Hi, honey, Dr. Rosen. Is he in? I'm sorry, John. No! You know what you have to do, Nash. She's too great a risk. Get away! I didn't mean to hurt you. Finish her. She knows too much now. Good job. You take care of her, you. Take care of you. Show him. Oh, Christ, John, please. Do what he says. Move, soldier. Now. Uncle John. John, please! Now! I understand. Never gets old. Marcy can't be real. She never gets old. He identifies the stronghold. Marcy can't be real. Marcy can't be real. She never gets older. She stays the same age. By the way, Russell Crowe should have won the Oscar for that one scene. Unbelievable acting on screen, right? Unbelievable. Amazing, amazing job. You have to identify the stronghold. Here's the second thing. The second part of your assignment is you have to name the truth that demolishes the stronghold. You have to name the truth that demolishes the stronghold. Why does the truth matter? Well, Jesus said this. He said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free, John 8, 32. What does the truth do? It makes us free. The lie puts you into spiritual bondage. And some of you are living a life based on a lie. You actually make decisions based on a stronghold or a fortress of a lie that you have believed for year after year. And you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I'll illustrate it with one of them. My more favorite stories from my childhood. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I had a friend who lived on Big Ridge named Chris Cooper. And Chris Cooper had a big house. 
had parents that just were fun-loving, life of the party. We would always go there and hang out. I don't even think I saw my parents, you know, for weeks at a time. It felt like in the summer. And we just stayed. And it was the only time, only person, only time I've ever been arrested and put in a cop car was at Chris Cooper's house. And it was for fake fighting out on the road. We'd do that fake fighting and then run when the cars came, you know. Well, finally somebody gets pulled over on the dam in Chattanooga because they've been told by 911 that they're fleeing the scene of a fight. So the cops come and get us, and you can imagine that was a bad night, right? But we were like 10 years old, you know, fake fighting and 11 years old. Well, one particular time at Chris Cooper's house, we're, we're having, uh, you know, just a good time, a good weekend, kind of hanging out together, and we were making funny home videos. One of the things we would love to do is we'd get the old VCR out with the big, you know, VHS, or the VHS recorder on your shoulder, and we'd make these funny videos, and then we'd sit and watch them. But before we'd watch them, we'd drink like four and five gallons of water, and see who could, could hold it long enough before going to the bathroom, okay? I mean, we just did all kinds of stuff. I mean, just, this is, yeah, it's just me. So one day, I come into his room, and in his room is a closet. It's kind of like an upper attic space that you can get up higher, you know, where like the HVA system is and all. And I walk into his room, and my spiritual spidey senses tell me something was amiss. And so I just saw, you know where I want to go? Where is it? It's his closet. I'm going to go look in his closet. And I did, and I opened up his closet. Chris is there. I don't know, he's been there probably four hours waiting. Because he thinks I'm going to you know, hang out in his room. He's going to jump out and scare me. I don't know how long he has been there. And so who knows how long it happened. So I thought, well, God prompted me to lock you in here all day long. And so I just immediately slammed the door. And I put my foot up against the door. And then I grabbed an office chair right there in his own house. And I slammed it in the door to make him pay, right? And uh, because you reap what you sow, and God, you know, he's the one that holds vengeance, but I just thought that day I would help God out. And so, you know, I'm throwing the chair up there, and, and, and God chose me to bring justice on that day, but I tried to lock him in, but the chair didn't fit. So the chair wouldn't go up under the door handle, right? So what I did, in love and war, in everything, I just lied, right? And so I've already confessed the sin, God's forgiven me. So I said to him, I said, Chris, you're locked in by a chair. That wasn't true. He wasn't locked in by a chair at all. But Chris, you're locked in by a chair, and you're going to spend the day locked in the closet. Y'all, God is my witness. Chris never tried to open the door. He just started whining. I mean, right there as, I don't know, we were 12 or 13, he started saying, this is unfair, life is unfair. And I just sat there in his own room and laughed for several minutes while he, you know, is behind this door. Well, life goes on for me, and I thought, I'm not going to let him out. Remember, this is time for justice. you got to pay. So I go in the room next door. All the while, Chris is behind an unlocked door. 20 or minutes or so later, God is my witness, I heard something in the ceiling above me. Chris had scaled in the attic the shelves and anything he could find in the trust system to try to get to the next door Room because he believed a lie that an unlocked door held him as a prisoner. Some of you right now, you, you don't experience what God has for you. You don't experience what he's already provided and made available for you because you're stuck behind an unlocked door. And the enemy has told you it's locked. You're not able to get out. Your mom wasn't able to get out. Your dad wasn't able to get out. What makes you think you're going to get out? You come from the wrong side of the tracks. This is what's going to happen in your marriage. Why would you think anything else? And you are scaling the efforts of your own own flesh to try to make it out of a room that's already been unlocked. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Whatever stronghold that is that's holding you prisoner in your mind, what do we do? We demolish it. Go back to the text. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And here's what we do. You ready? We take captive. Everybody say captive. We're not prisoner to our own thoughts. We take our thoughts captive and we make them obedient to Christ. We take our thoughts captive, whatever thought it is, we take it captive. In fact, here's what I love, church. The Greek word captive right there that's, that's translated captive is a term that means to attack with a sword 
or a spear. Let me preach just for a moment. When you talk about the weapons we fight with, and they're not the weapons of this world, the Bible says in Ephesians 6, we have spiritual armor. What do we have? We have the helmet of salvation. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shield of faith. We have the belt of truth. Our shoes are prepared with the gospel of peace and the readiness of peace. And all of those, listen, are defensive weapons. We have one offensive weapon. And you know what that weapon is? It's the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and so God says it is his word that sets us free it is the word of God that fights and destroys and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God and it cuts away the lies of the enemy and that doesn't mean you got to do it one day or one time there's been seasons in my life I got to do it every five minutes of every day and every time to keep fighting with the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit it's the powerful living word of God that's sharper than any double-edged sword divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and we let God's word take captive any lie that has held us hostage. So today my question is, what is your stronghold? What's the dominant lie that your spiritual enemy has tried to use to destroy your faith, to kill your relationships, to rob you of intimacy that God wants you to have with him? What's your stronghold? The one that I've been attacking, mine, I've been attacking the lies with God's word that has haunted me since 2018. Is the lie I believed is that, again, there is a, a worldview, a pervasive, ominous perspective is the only way I know how to communicate it, that overcomes, seems to be pervasive, meaning it, it's not welcomed in my mind, but it comes and tries to settle in. Thankfully, in those moments, I don't have to rely on what's inside of me because there is a power that's greater than me that's absolutely and completely more than enough. Can I hear an amen? So here's my, here's my sword from the word of God. Second Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has given me, he has given us everything we need for a godly life. So you know what I did? I started personalizing. My wife helped me because she put it on my mirror. Put it on my mirror where I brush my teeth. And I began to personalize it. God's divine power has given me everything I need to do. He's given me the time to do what he's called me to do. I have enough time in my life. He's given me the strength to do what he's called me to do. When I'm weak, his strength is made perfect in me. Listen to me. Worry never adds. It only ever takes away. It never adds anything. It only ever takes away from you. Only ever takes away God's desire for you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is dwelling on the inside of me. His living word does work that I cannot do. His power is there for me when I don't have what it takes. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness and the calling that Jesus has placed on my life. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's the truth that will set you free? Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I can't get it all done. I can never get it all done. And your truth is, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength when I'm weak. He makes me strong. Maybe you feel like I'm never going to be attractive enough. I don't like the way I look. No, 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 no. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the grace of God. He's given you gifts to make a difference in the world that you and I live in. Maybe you feel like I'm always going to be miserable. I'm never going to be joyous. I'm always going to be depressed. No, 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 no. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So you battle. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The moment the lie tells you you're always going to be alone. No, 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 no. God is with me. He will never leave me. No, not never leave me nor forsake me. Oh, but you're nothing but just a victim. No, 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 no. God's word tells me and I'm an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and by the words of my testimony. I'm not what others say I am. I'm not who others say I am. I'm not even who the lies in my own mind say that I am. Can I liberate somebody today? I'm gonna give you some permission today. You don't have to think and believe everything you do think. So you don't have to actually believe all that you think. You don't actually have to Allow what you're thinking to permeate your belief system. I am who God says that I am. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen, your life, my life, is in so many ways moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What comes into your mind comes out in your life. You cannot have a positive, faith-filled life when you have a negative, fear-filled mind. So what are we going to do? We're going to capture those lies. We're going to name it. We're going to define it. We're going to replace it with truth. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy. You find the root of the lie. Normally, we need people around us to help us find that root through some type of engagement, conversation, therapy, reality, counseling. Then we have to consistently... 
take that root and replace it with truth. And replace it with truth. Well, Craig, I did that two times. Should be working. How about 2,000 times? Okay? To create a neural pathway that is new. That's submitted to the mind and the will of God. And by the power of God, you won't stay locked in a prison. You won't. And Jesus holds the key that sets you and I free. You'll know the truth. Listen, and the truth is not just a concept. The truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And he'll set you free. Listen to me. Look at me, church. Your identity must be stronger than the lies in our current culture. Hear me. When Jesus started his ministry, I thought about it last night. You know what Jesus' first initiative in ministry was? His first initiative. It was his baptism. You know what it was? His first initiative wasn't to, to make a name. It was to receive a name. And the best news I can give you today is if you want to start this journey in new ways, you're going to have to receive a name, the beloved of God. And that identity has going to have to permeate every part of your being. And every lie that tries to combat that truth, you're going to have to continue to use the the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to speak truth to that deception, to speak truth to whatever lie it is. So John is caught now between the intellectual paralysis of the antipsychotic drugs and his delusions. And this scene's so powerful. I'm not going to show the whole scene. I'm going to show a minute of it. But the very first part of the scene, it's so powerful. Let me tell you about it. The doctor tells Alicia that Nash is only going to get worse. And she says, are you going to hurt me? And he says, I don't know. You need to leave. And this is the turning point in the movie. He then hears the car start as she leaves the room and he thinks she's gone. And the memorable part is when Alicia stops the car, comes back up the steps, walks into the room, and John realizes something extraordinary is possible. He's now in the presence of true love, something that even the luckiest, richest, successful, and most powerful people in the world can desire, but they can't find. And she looks at her husband and says, this is real. This is real. Watch this. I need to believe that something extraordinary is possible. John, from this point forward, goes from having a miracle in his mind to finally having a miracle in his heart. He moves in this journey of life from having what the psychologist told him as an infant. He had two parts mind and only half part heart. To having a full heart that comes alongside his full mind. From this point forward, he tries to say goodbye to his three friends forever. These imaginary friends. To ignore his hallucinations, and he says a tearful goodbye to Marcy and stroking her hair and calls her baby girl, telling him, I will not speak to you anymore. Now, we've identified, then we've replaced, but I would be amiss if I walked off today and didn't tell you there's another reality to this. That is to say, 
many of us do find ourselves behind an unlocked door, then there are other times where it's not an unlocked door. There are other times where we are facing pervasive spiritual warfare in our minds. That's something altogether different. So what I want to do is I want to share from Luke chapter 11 in closing two things that must be a part of our life if we're going to win the war in our minds, if we're going to win the spiritual warfare that we're waging. So Jesus in, instructs in Luke chapter 11 the disciples of how to approach the Christian life. And he says, if we don't recognize the real nature of the enemy, we're going to be ill-equipped to survive the battle. Can I read the text with you and give you two final thoughts? This is a text that explains to us why we struggle so much to bring real change into our lives. Most of us have things we'd love to change, but many of us are discouraged at some present inability, right? It's a persistent inability to keep doing it. Some of us even didn't make a resolution this year because we don't want to, what? Be ashamed that we can't meet it. So Jesus is going to explain that there are some spiritual forces at work. And apart from this, any true attempt at change is going to be doomed to fail, even if it looks like it succeeds. So let's read it. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus, he was driving out a demon that was mute. Or a demon that was making the man mute. Now let's just stop right here for a moment and just say, some of you may say, really? Jesus actually believed that some physical and psychological problems were caused by demons? Short answer, yes. And that's consistent throughout the Bible. Now there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes here that we can't necessarily get to today. Maybe that strikes you as naive, okay? We know that diseases have viral causes, for instance. We know emotional and spiritual problems can be explained by psychological reasons. We understand that, or the result of past trauma. I understand all of that. But the reality is, Jesus would say that if you think all of life's issues, all of them can be explained by merely physical factors, you're the actual naive one. That not all of them are physical. So do you really think that at the root of Holocaust was just a man with chemical imbalances? You kill six million people because you have a chemical imbalance and an inability for serotonin and dopamine to drop? No. Yes, it's true. It's both and. It's not either or. And so how can we not see the spiritual forces at work trying to consistently... What do we have this week, y'all? What, we have 30 mass shootings in our nation in a week? What do we have... Another white cop shooting another black man? Is it going to happen every week to propagate and cause the issues of racism to continue? Do we think that's a mere psychological issue going on? Spiritual forces. It's spiritual forces. And so what happens? He says, verse 14, When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Beelzebub means the lord of dung. The Lord of the flies. Calling Jesus the Lord of demons was a way the religious leaders could kind of explain away his power. Look at verse 17. They thought he got his power from Satan. Knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. Jesus knew them. He told them. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand, Jesus says. Now this is logically as simple as it gets, right? How does it make sense that Satan would empower Jesus to destroy his other works? If Satan is the one behind certain diseases and afflictions, if he loves to spread dung, Lord of the dung into people's lives in the form of disease and death, why would he empower Jesus to clean up those things? So Jesus is saying, your argument doesn't even make sense. Verse 19, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges, Jesus says. So his second piece of reasoning is this. If I cast out demons by Satan's power, then by whose power do your sons cast them out? By what standard do you say my power is from Satan and theirs is from God? If mine are from Satan, maybe yours are from Satan. He's showing them the inconsistency of their accusation. This is not an honest intellectual objection from the Pharisees. He goes on, verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God. Y'all, the finger of God is a reference all the religious leaders would have recognized because the finger of God was the phrase the Egyptian sorcerers used to describe the power Moses displayed in the Exodus. He came in in the Exodus. He came in with the plagues and the finger of God. So they knew it very well what the finger of God. Moses threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake. That was a move by the finger of God. All the gnats and all the frogs and turning the Nile to blood was by the finger of God. We can't do this. So Jesus, 
indicates, verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger, everybody say stronger. When the stronger one attacks and overpowers him, he takes from all him, from all his weapons he trusted in, and divides his plunder. Now, who in this analogy is the strong man? Satan. And who is the stronger man? Jesus. Jesus is the stronger man that, what? Plunders Satan. And plunders Satan and his possessions. And in this, impo- in this parable, who is you? Who am I? It's important. We're the property. We're first owned by the strong man, Satan. And then we're liberated by the stronger man, Jesus. And the implication is this. Hear me, church. Hear me, hear me. You're either going to belong to one or the other. There is no middle ground in this earth. You belong to one or you belong to other. That's it. You would say, well, I can ride the fence. I used to preach a message all the time with my teenagers. I'd stand. I'd get two chairs and just stand. I'd say, you got Satan and his team over here always out. And I'd preach a sermon like this. They'd come to you and say, hey, do the drugs and do this and hang out and do whatever you want. And then, no, I don't really want to do that. I've been taught not to do that. But then somebody would come out from over here and we'd have them team Jesus. We'd come over here and read the Bible and go to church with us. And no, I don't really want to be fully sold out. I just want to kind of stay in the middle. And then I'd get to the end of my message. You know what happened? I'd let the Satan and his team come and pull me off the chair. I'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. I said... I haven't compromised my morals. I don't want to go fully that way or fully that way. And I would always have Satan say or the demon say, Oh, you forgot. I own the fence. So you can say all day long, I can ride the fence. This is where teenagers live. Right here. On Satan's territory. Oh, I'm not going to go fully that way. I'm certainly not going to go fully that way. I'm just going to ride the fence. Now you belong to one or you belong to the other. Whether we want to believe that or not, it's the truth. It's what Jesus says. So how, how can I fight? Two quick things. You'll see them on your card in front of you. Number one, this is powerful. Number one, he says, really clearly, Jesus is the only master that can free us. We've got to understand and notice. The only way we overcome is through total surrender. Everybody say surrender. He says, anyone who's not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. You're either all in on Team Jesus or you're still on Team Satan. Hold on, no way. I'm, I may not be a fully devoted Christian, Pastor Craig, but I don't belong to Satan. Yes, you do. Either you're fully surrendered to Jesus or you're still a possession of Satan. There's no other way to interpret the biblical text. I have to have total surrender. It's the way I overcome the power of the evil one. There's only two teams I often say, this is one of the things I tell our foundation growth phase, in every heart, there is a cross and a throne. Every heart has a cross and a throne. And if you, listen, if you put Jesus on the throne, you go to the cross. If you sit on the throne, Jesus goes to the cross. So if he's going to rule, you're going to have to die. You're going to have to die. That's total surrender. And then the second one is earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. We access divine power through earnest prayer, unrelenting prayer. We didn't read it, but in this passage right before it, Jesus had been teaching about the power of prayer. And he says a man has this unexpected visitors in the middle of the night. They needed bread to feed their guests. So he goes over to his neighbors in the middle of the night and knocks and knocks and knocks and doesn't give up until he gives them the loaves. And Jesus says, this is how you should pray. He said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, that's the stronger man, to those who ask him. Then Jesus tells the story about the demons. If you want the power of the Holy Spirit, if you want the power of the stronger man in through your life, you only get it through total surrender and desperate, urgent, unrelenting prayer. That's how you get spiritual power. That's how you overcome in spiritual warfare. Total surrender, unrelenting prayer. Total surrender, unrelenting prayer so as we conclude Nash receives the Nobel Prize and he has this inner exchange in front of all this crowd of people with his beloved bride who helped him identify the stronghold replace it with truth overcome through the power of relational love and live a well-lived life let's watch this as we close come on team
Thank you. I've always believed in numbers. In the equations and logics that lead to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. And I've made the most important discovery of my career. The most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logical reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. You are all my reasons. Unrelenting relational love. See, the beauty is, is that we as the church have a context for people to help us identify the strongholds, to find the root of wrong thinking, to love us through. When so many other wives would have walked out, she stays with him, stays with him for a lifetime, continues to love him. We have a community of people who help us replace the lie with the truth and love us right in the midst of whatever we face. Aren't you grateful for his body? Today we have connect groups meeting that help you identify the stronghold, replace the stronghold, demolish it with truth. Would you bow your heads with me all across this room? Father, I thank you today that there are those in this room that are gathered. Gather, Lord, under the one name, Jesus, the banner that is Jesus, to declare the rule leadership, the reign of King Jesus in our hearts, our lives, our minds. You said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and mind. Lord, our minds are yours. We dedicate our minds to you today that, Lord, we would think upon such things. As Paul tells us in Philippians 3, that whatever is praiseworthy and lovely and noble, we think upon such things. As we think upon such things, our life tends to move in that direction. And so, God, in a world so jaded, with pessimism and cynicism in a world of pandemic and doubt and unrelenting negativity and paralysis, we choose to think upon the things of God, the things eternal. You said in Colossians 3 that we would put our minds on things above, not things below. That God, you would help us in our hour to think eternally, to think not worried thoughts, but peaceful thoughts. That you, oh God, guard our minds. You're able to keep in perfect peace the mind that stayed upon you. Lord, I pray that strong man Satan and his demons would be slayed in the lives and the minds of people in this congregation that are battling overwhelming anxiety or areas of depression or darkness or ominous, Lord, perspectives. God, I just pray that the light and life of Jesus, for those streaming live today, that wherever you're at, that the light and life of our King Jesus, that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And though at times and seasons it looks like darkness is overcoming light, Lord, your light is more powerful. Your light is eternal and your light cannot be overcome. And so, Lord, we pray that you would shine your light into marriages. 
Lord, even marriages that are on the brink or rocks or hurting and the lies of the enemy have tried to hold them bondage. May they come out of the unlocked door today and recognize, Jesus, that you have provided a way of deliverance and life and liberty and strength, O oh God. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for those in this room battling addiction, God, addiction or habitual addiction, O oh God, that the enemy keeps telling it will always be their future. Lord, we cast that lie back to the pit of hell where it belongs and where it came from. And I thank you that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. I thank you that, Lord, this church would be a church of disciples, men and women, who would continue in your word and they would know your word and the truth would set us free. Today we begin the process of identifying the stronghold, demolishing the stronghold with the truth of your word. I pray, give us total surrender and unrelenting prayer. I pray this in Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.